It's In The Loop, brought to you this week by The Frontline Guy. If The Frontline Guy likes it, that's all you need to know. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Jeff, and you're listening to In The Loop, of course. Uh, I'm a little stuffy today, but um, really... What's new with me, right? Uh, but I have found that what's bad for the sinuses is good for uh, impressions of frontline guy. So, silver lining everywhere you look. Uh, welcome to 2010, everybody. Welcome to the future, uh, where evidently we do know the terrorists are on our airplanes uh, and we plan to have a conversation with them when they land. Uh, at least that's the latest uh, as I'm sitting here talking to you right this moment. Uh, we're going to get into that ubiquitous news a little bit later in the show, kind of in our oblique way. We found somebody who traveled recently to Yemen, and that's uh, unusual. So we thought we'd call her up and see what it was like. Uh, But for the first part of the show, we'll do our best to uh, steer your minds in some other directions, and for the later part of the show as well. Uh, Among other things, we've got all these great responses to our question that we put out to you guys on Facebook and on our uh, email list. 2010 will be my year of blank. Fill in the blank. A number of people answered that in a very functional way. Uh, for Jessica, with four kids, this will be the year of no more children's diapers after 12 years of that. Man. Uh, for Heidi, it's the, the year she begins actually planning her menus. For Eugene, the year of retirement. For Brian, who I, I think I recall is up in northern Minnesota somewhere, this is uh, the year of coping with new federal lead paint removal regulations. Brian's a painter. Other people uh, had more of a... Uh, see more sort of social implications in the new year uh, for Iram on our Facebook page 2010 will be he says mark his words the year of getting laid uh, and I think maybe we should team him up with Pascal who commented a little earlier on the page saying uh, this is going to be his year of debauchery he may know something that's useful to Iram uh, for Ryan this is the year of self-destruction um, good luck with that and for, for Philip, among other people, uh, the year of adventure. Lots of people saying this is their year for adventure and trying new things. For Lucy, our friend up in Duluth, this is the year, she says, of feeling earth underfoot. Lucy climbing down from the trees, I guess, so she can hug them a little tighter. Uh, Norwood in North Carolina, the year of living an undivided life. Polly, actually, I don't know where Polly's from, uh, but he said on our Facebook page, this is the year, 2010, of getting his ukulele tuned up and playable. What is a ukulele? I didn't know. Uh, You probably don't know. Naturally, there are clips of people playing ukuleles rather wretchedly in most cases on YouTube. Somewhere between a ukulele and the fiddle of the devil himself, I guess. That's what a ukulele is. We're going to hear directly from a few people over the course of this show, and I think actually next week's show will spread them out a bit, Um, other people who responded to this question. So let's just kick off the show with one that that caught our attention. This is um, Molly Rerick, who lives in Canyon Country, California. What a lovely bucolic name for a place to live, who says, 2010 will be my year of wearing more hats. Elaborate, Molly, if you would. First, I meant seriously, I do want to take on more things in my life. I want to wear the hat of an adventurer and a traveler and see more of the world and where I live. But I also honestly want to wear more hats, start a hat collection, maybe, you know, break out of my box a little. And so I've started on my way. I already got a couple gifts for Christmas of hats. 
Um, right now, I have a very cute straw cowgirl hat. I also have a cute uh, military-style hat and one that's more patchwork, hippie-ish, I guess you'd call it. I really think I'm motivated this year to do something different, and it just seems like a new decade, you know, a, a new starting point for lots of different things, so I'm adding this to my list. Molly listens to us out in the Los Angeles area. Good to hear from her. Uh, she responded to us, I think, uh, after we sent the question out to our email list. If you're not on it, get there. Go to uh, intheloopshow.net and click join the network on the right-hand side of the page. This next segue uh, comes to you courtesy of Sandin Totten, who get all the credit or the blame for it, but I couldn't think of anything better, so here goes. Speaking of hats, we got a chance, plenty of chances, in fact, to put our tech geek hats on this week. Uh, not only is that uh, CES show going on with all kinds of new gadgets coming out, but Google unveiled their own phone, the Nexus One, which lots of other people have said it, but I'll just say it as well. Nexus is a shampoo and uh, always will be a shampoo sold in salons when I was a uh, small child. My choice, though, was to dig into the crazy frenzy just a little bit earlier in the week over the possibility of Apple, seems like a quite likely possibility now, of Apple coming out finally with a tablet PC. So let's get into that. On the phone with me now, I've got Jason Snell. He's the editor of Macworld Magazine. And uh, if you've been listening to the show for a while, I believe you've heard him before. We're glad to have him back. Jason, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. In situations like this, uh, when the... Apple tablet whatever is is just around the corner uh, so tantalizingly close uh, do do journalists at a place like Macworld I mean does everybody just sort of turn into fanboy mode or uh, what's it like around there I, I think we're actually more frustrated than anything else because there's been so much talk about this product but yet as far as I can tell almost nothing in the way of facts there's a lot of a lot of excitement but um, at this point, nobody knows anything about it. Well, it's a very interesting situation because we're not talking about something that's that's months and months away. I mean, people have been speculating about an Apple tablet uh, computer for a long time, but this now is March. That's really close. Well, even that date, I mean, I I've, I personally would expect that it wouldn't be out until more like June, like the iPhone, which was announced in, mm. in uh, January and, and was released in late June. So... I'm not even sure that is a fact that we can be comfortable with. So, you know, there's, yep. we don't know a lot. It's sort of, it's in this state of grace where it can be anything you want it to be. Do you have any idea what this, what this is going to be called? There are a bunch of different reports out there. Uh, Mac Rumors website it said that Apple had bought Isolate.com and, uh, and a, a trademark. Hmm. My money, and this is not, I wouldn't place a bet on this, but my money is actually on them bringing back the iBook name, which they retired a few years ago. Huh. But nobody knows. Nobody knows for sure. What, what, if anything, are some concrete details we do know about it? We know, we, we know that it's a, well, we know that it would be a tablet device, for example, which means, means what for the uninitiated? Right. I'm not sure if we know anything concrete, but I mean, the general feeling is it's a device that is not your traditional laptop device. It doesn't have a physical keyboard and fold over and things like that. But it, it, just think of an iPhone that's bigger, hmm. that's, that's not thicker, that maybe even thinner, but that's bigger, a, a much larger 10-inch diagonal screen on something that otherwise is kind of like an iPhone. So what's the scenario here with a tablet that you can imagine? How does this change the way that we compute, <laughs> the way the iPhone changed the way we view our phones? Well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? I mean, that that if I knew that... 
I should probably apply for a job at Apple because mm-hmm. that's exactly what the what everybody wants to know. Is it reading? I mean, that's one of the, th- the things that people have been talking about. If you think about the apps that are available for the iPhone, imagine that kind of thought process on a device like this, where you can read books and newspapers and magazines and surf the web and watch videos at maybe, you know, mm-hmm. high, maybe HD resolution. And um, play piano, apparently, according to the most popular images of it that are well, sure. I still kind of feel like it's got to have a real kind of killer uh, application. If it's just sort of, well, you don't really need a laptop because you can surf the web on this and it's got a nice screen, it might work. But I I think that um, Apple will come out with a very specific focus. They'll say, look, these are the things that it does. It does this and this and this. Do you uh, believe, as skeptical as you need to be, I guess, as as the editor of uh, Macworld, do you you believe that Apple most likely has the golden touch here again and that this will not be a turkey? I think Apple's got great discipline and that they wouldn't come out with this product unless they thought it would be a success. But I do think it's a a tougher road to hoe than um, the iPhone was. It's different, and um, I think that's part of their challenge is that it's going to be bigger and harder to hold and harder to interact with. And how do they solve those problems? They've been working on it for years, presumably. So how do they solve these issues? What's the, and what's their story? Why, why does anybody want one? If they can figure that one out, they'll sell a lot of them. Do you believe that, uh, that Apple loves this this frenzy I and mean, everybody's so frustrated about what's real what's not is this just exactly how they want these things to play out the, it's the opposite of microsoft right microsoft always announces things way in advance because they want everybody to know and their competitors to be scared and consumers to be disappointed yeah well that's the side <laughs> effect apple goes the reverse route which is apple tries to keep it all secret because then all the suspense builds up now the, the problem with that is that everybody has their own dream of what it's going to be and some people are going to be disappointed but generally Apple has benefited from the secrecy. That's their shtick. I mean, it works for them. Science is a, and technology, those are laborious, slow kind of engineering processes. It's not a, it's not a game show. It's not a, it's not a movie or, a, or, or theater. But Apple turns it into theater, and it works really well for them. So they love it. Fun to talk with you again, Jason. I look forward to next time. Thank you. Jason Snell, editor of Macworld at Macworld.com, of course. And uh, he's on Twitter, as so many of us are, at Snell, S-N-E-L-L. Uh, and we're there at In The Loop. If you're not following us, do it. So all this hoopla about the iSlate, whatever it's going to be called, uh, kicked up just in advance of the Consumer Electronics Show, which is going on at this very moment as I speak to you in Las Vegas. And uh, the CES threw a couple interesting wrinkles into this. Apple's, the rumor anyway, is that this Apple thing is going to maybe be at a price point of around $1,000, which to a lot of people seems kind of steep, but uh, we all want to have an Apple, right? It's a status thing. So... Microsoft unveiled at the CES a bunch of tablet devices that it's going to put on the market uh, this spring. Uh, price point's not exactly clear, but maybe they'll be playing around that area, perhaps a little bit lower. And there's this other company that unveiled a device that looks an awful lot like these mock-ups that we're seeing of the Isolate. Uh, Freestyle is the name of the company, and this little tablet computer they're going to be selling is going to be going for 200 bucks. So, a good test. Just how cool do we all think Apple is? Is it 800 bucks worth of cool? Um, we'll find out. Speaking of cool technology that costs a lot of money and uh, maybe out of pace with the times, this new world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, the Burj Dubai as it's known, uh, opened formally this week. And if you haven't seen videos of this thing, you have to check it out. It is absolutely insane. 
And one of the most amazing things, aside from being huge, I mean, this is the tallest building on earth and uh, uh, the tallest structure on earth. And it stands uh, away from the main downtown of Dubai a little bit. It's just this huge spire rising out of this uh, desert metropolis. It's wild. And of course, the plans for this whole thing unfolded while Dubai was flying high on uh, an invisible, at least then it was invisible, you know, jet stream of of debt. And and now, of course, has become something of a debtor state with a lot of vacant property and um, a difficult road ahead. Uh, but the project continued. They borrowed a bunch of money from some rich guy who's the president of United Arab Emirates next door. I believe it's next door and managed to pull it off, renaming the tower after him, of course. So you have this huge, beautiful, to me anyway, it's it's beautiful, um, anachronistic symbol stuck out in the middle of the desert. And uh, that naturally provided a little musical inspiration this week. Uh, just, a, just a short piece, unusually mellow for me. Maybe it's the uh, subject matter, uh, maybe it's the fact that I have a bit of a cold. This is not the kind of piece I think I probably would have written if I had my, had my full voice. But anyway, here it is, kind of wistful little spacey uh, short tune about the new world's tallest building. Burj Dubai Way up in the sky Building so cool You don't need to ask why Untimely tribute To plans gone awry Platform for when we all thought we could fly Burj Dubai One way to get high No kind of demand that can meet that supply When you get to the top Take the view in and then What a good place to contemplate Falling again All right, no video of this one this time. It would have been a pretty boring video, I think. But if you uh, want to get an MP3 of it, you can find that at our Facebook page, loopfacebook.net, or uh, look for our blog post, intheloopshow.net. Maybe a quick shout-out to my mother-in-law for giving me the glockenspiel for Christmas, that little xylophone thingy that I was able to put to good use there. And a quick note about the guitar. If you thought it sounded interesting, that's a charitable term for it. I actually screwed up. I left the channel on the board open while I was recording it that I shouldn't have, so I got this kind of weird reverby feedbacky thing uh, on the guitar part. Then I kind of listened back to it, and I thought, mm, maybe it's not so bad. It's kind of nifty. So I just left it there and moved on. Well, let's hang out in the Middle East here for another segment or so, shall we? If you've tuned into the news at all lately, you know that Yemen, this country which is hanging off the bottom of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, uh, is kind of the world geography darling of the week. Uh, The Nigerian terrorist allegedly did some training there. Half the guys still in Guantanamo are from Yemen. So we went digging through our our sources, people who uh, at some point for various reasons have been in touch with Minnesota Public Radio or American Public Media just to see uh, if anybody had any experience with Yemen. And we found just a few. It's not a terribly popular destination, as you might imagine. But one of them is Mia Venster, who's on the phone with me now from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Mia, good morning. Thanks very much for talking with In The Loop. 
Good morning, Mr. Horowitz. Mia Venster's a great name. You're you're from Belgium originally? I am right? from Belgium, and it's, it's a very unique name. You, you won't find too many in the world. Even in Belgium, huh? Exactly. <laughs> These days, you are a receptionist at a law firm in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I have been for the last 10 years. Okay. So, what possessed you? You seem like a, like a pretty straight-ahead, normal person. What possessed you to plan a trip to Yemen, I think two years ago, right? Exactly. Well, people at my job don't consider me normal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> some jokes go around uh, that, you know, I frequent uh, terrorists probably. One of these days I will not return to work. Uh-huh. So it's not uncommon for you to plan trips to exotic, no. maybe dangerous places. Exactly. And then I came across a travel article about Yemen. So I did some research online and books and so on. And before I knew it, I booked a trip. At the same time, I've always had this dream, I still do, of learning Arabic before I die. So Yemen was, was part of that? You studied yes, a bit in Yemen? Yes, I some schools, um, and I picked one. And that turned out to be kind of a notorious language school, am I right? Yes, and so when I looked at the internet the other day at BBC World News, and I see the, the photo of the entrance to my school, I go, oh goodness. <laughs> well, because, let's just put a fine point on it, that's, that's where this Nigerian uh, fellow... Studied, yes. studied Arabic. He had while been he was there a few years ago, I understand. So you, you might have crossed paths at the school with him. I guess it's a time I, might have. I mean, I was recalling uh, the people that were there in the morning. We would, you know, meet and sit in the courtyard and mingled with the students there. And they came from around the world. So when you get to Yemen, what kind of a vacation did you take? What, what all did you do? My goal was to immerse myself in, you know, the culture and the language. I think it's a great way to learn about the people. I wanted to go to the heartland, which is now a tribal area and, and was and always been sort of a dangerous place to be. So you have to coordinate with police. And I had a driver through the desert because I wanted to stay with the Bedouins overnight. Out in a tent kind of a situation. I, yes, yes. In <laughs> this presume. case, it was a lady with her three daughters. And uh, it was wonderful, wonderful, and then waking up in the desert, great experience. And then we went on to an area called Shibam. We stopped at uh, this temple where I was by myself. I wandered around, and it's it's very ancient. Then, of course, I found out that two weeks later, a group of Spanish tourists were ambushed by suicide bombers. At that same temple? At that same place, and now that gave me goosebumps. Yeah, it sounds like this really weird combination. I mean, you were, you were treated well. You say it was it was beautiful and the people were friendly, right? And uh, yes, your, yes. your travels were, were safe, oh. but yet you're surrounded, you know, by a guard. You know, you are encountering temples that have suicide bombings a few weeks after you leave. Yeah. I have this impression of Yemen, of it being almost lawless, you know. It parts is of, almost extremely like a, lawless. It, it's very much ruled by tribal chiefs. So as we uh, listen to and, and read the news these days, do you think we're getting a wrong impression of Yemen, or do you think actually the, the great danger that we're all being told uh, exists there is more or I less right? I think the great danger existed already, but, you know, nobody paid attention to Yemen. When I was driving around there and visiting, I said, my goodness, oh, this is a wonderful place for people who want to have training camps. It's desolate, it's, uh, you know, rugged terrain, and it is vulnerable. They're having internal problems with the Al-Houthi group in the north, bordering Saudi Arabia. So a civil war kind of a thing. Right? Yes, yeah. it has been going for on forever. And I think the, the country is so divided politically, with so much unemployment and so many young people that are so vulnerable to, yeah, I'll give you $200 if you go to this training camp, for example. And, and the country is, has no resources. And I feel sorry because, you know, Yemen is a beautiful country. It's an ancient site, and 
And the people are nice. Of course, it's like everywhere. You mm-hmm. have a couple of bad individuals. In that case, a couple are more so than in other countries. Where are you off to next? What's your next vacation? Hi. Danger vacation. I'm debating. You know, I, I have dreams gathering information on all these countries ending in Stan. You know, like <laughs> I'll leave Afghanistan probably alone, but Tajikistan, mm-hmm. Uzbekistan, and, and in that neighborhood. Turkmenistan, yeah. We yes, absolutely. Wander a bit into Mongolia and check mm. out their Bactrian camels. I'm a camel freak, unfortunately. <laughs> well, Mia, I uh, really admire your traveling chutzpah, and thanks for sharing your, your Yemen experience with us. Thank you. All the best. That was Mia Venster talking with me on the phone from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And she sent us a whole bunch of pictures. These are amazing, beautifully shot photos. Are they not, Sandin? Oh, my goodness. Cactuses and yeah. beautiful architecture and Cities, sunsets. carved cities, like hanging off of cliffs uh, from her trip to Yemen. And Sandin put those together into a nice little travelogue slideshow, which you can find on our website, yep. inthelooshow.net. And Sandin's here, which can mean various things, but today, as it often does, it means Sandin's Scribbit cast. Scribbit! And you know what, Jeff? Uh, Mia Venster is like a total anomaly. Not only is she sort of like freakishly outside the norm in her choice of vacation areas, but she's freakishly outside of the norm in the amount of vacation she takes, which uh, is basically what was asked of in the Scribbit this week. Someone right. In the Scribbit, let's remind people we have this little widget on our webpage. People can submit a question. We, we're we not guaranteed to do them all. In fact, there are way more there right now than we uh, can do. But we, we pick from among them and you and go do an investigation. When you do a sort. really good one like the one I got this week, I immediately want to jump on it and uh, find out some more. And someone asked... Why do Americans feel so guilty about taking vacation? My first question would be, back, okay, can we substantiate that? Do Is this just anecdotal or do Americans really feel guilty okay. as we, a country we about can, taking Jeff, vacation? We can, We totally can. And I did. It. It's one third of all Americans who don't take all the vacation allotted to them. One fifth canceled or postponed their vacations to keep up with work stuff. Americans get the least amount of vacation time of all the big economies that were surveyed in the survey I'm referencing, which is a Expedia survey they do every year about vacation time. You know, Expedia, of course, uh, has no say in how much vacation people take, but would probably like that you take more. They want to know. And um, 29% of all men and up to 40% of all women actually have reported feeling guilty about taking vacation. So okay. this question does not come out of nowhere. It's well justified. And this is laid up against other other countries. Japan, I would think Europe Germany, especially. Spain, France. Yeah, Japanese are always going to Hawaii and people in Europe are like work three weeks a year. Yeah. Something like that. Um, okay, so... Once we have established that this is somewhat true, what did you find out? What's the deal? Why are Americans inhibited about taking their vacation time? Well, okay, so if we're talking about like a third of the population, you, you figure you, I, uh, we should know somebody, and it'd be easy to find somebody who could just tell us themselves, which was totally true. I checked my Twitter feed, and within minutes, Peggy Flanagan got back to me, and she said, yeah, I feel guilty about taking vacations. She uh, she runs a Native American leadership project. At, tell us about Peggy, if you would. Yeah, a program. It's called Wellstone Action. They do all sorts of political organizing. And uh, she's done six years, a six-year stretch with no vacation. Ouch. I know, right? Peggy. And she says basically what's going Peggy. on is <laughs> sometimes work just feels too important. Like the entire future of the state of Minnesota, you know, it's like... Resting on our shoulders. Yeah, that does make it kind of hard to take a vacation. You don't want to let Absolutely. everybody in the state down. <laughs> Think of the looks you'll get on the street. Exactly. Right, yes. You know, it's even like, can sometimes be looked down upon. Like, oh, they used all their vacation time this year. Or, 
people who do yoga or go on meditation retreats or whatever is kind of seen as sort of frou-frou in American culture. Well, it depends, of course, on, you know, how much you like your job and the kind of job you're in. Uh, we're actually going to talk about that a little later in the show. But uh, I can certainly understand that pressure. In an economy like this, everybody wants to be productive and, and not look like you're slacking off because you lose your job, you're in deep trouble. Yeah, and, and nobody wants to leave their, you know, co-workers with a buttload of work to do while you're gone or then come back and have this mountain of stuff. I mean, people mm-hmm. have just, you know, they don't want to basically screw other people by taking a vacation. But this guy, Joe Robinson, he says, Psh. Look, you're entitled to take a vacation. Okay, so Joe Robinson, he wrote a book called Work to Live. A generic title, but it's got a good message. And he spreads the gospel of uh, work to live through talks and he does life coaching sessions. And, you know, he blames the guilt we feel on our Puritan Protestant forebears who, uh, you know, pretty much felt guilty about everything. But he also says, you know, we really define ourselves by how we work rather than our, our social life. But good old Joe says that according to science, Americans, they should be taking vacation a lot more seriously. There's many reasons, actually. Uh, for instance, a vacation can cut the risk of heart attack in men by 30% and women by 50%. <laughs> There's uh, the whole idea of refueling your brain. You're no different than an iPod or a cell phone. You need to get recharged as well, or you're not going to be as productive. All the studies show that productivity increases when somebody gets back from a vacation. Response times go up 30 to 40%. Productivity, by some measures, have gone up as much as 60 to 80 percent. So that makes plenty of sense. I mean, it's good good to relax. But I think a lot of people, I mean, if, you, if you're like me, I, I was saying to you the other day, if you have a kid, for example, yeah. and you've spent all your sick days on the kid and yourself from the colds that the kid gives you, it's like you, you want to hang on to that extra vacation. I don't want to spend it all because I might actually need it for a practical purpose. Right. We need vacations for lots of things, not just to relax. And I mean, imagine even worse if you're one of the 29% of Americans, according to one poll, who get no paid vacation at all. Yuck. And the same poll said that half get less than a week. So, uh, you know, this is some pretty startling stuff. And it was enough to get a guy named John DeGraff PO'd enough to help kick off something called the Paid Vacation Act. It's a very modest proposal by Congressman Alan Grayson of Orlando, Florida, that would basically give workers some guarantee of at least one to two weeks paid time off, depending on the size of the company that they work for. You know what, Sandin? I like that because I just I hate this feeling that when I go into use a stereotypical example, like a McDonald's, you know, where a person is not getting paid very much to begin with and they also have no vacation. I'm incensed by that. Yeah, concept. I mean, it's actually behind this kind of thing. Pretty embarrassing to be an American when you like sort of look at vacations like that. And uh, right, you know, you look at people from France or they're all on vacation right now. Well, no, I mean, I mean, specifically <laughs> when you're talking about you know paid vacation, uh, you know, America. Yeah, our record is uh, pretty terrible. Do you know how many countries in the world don't have a law that requires mandatory vacation time? The United States, Guyana, Suriname, Nepal, and Burma. That's five. That's it. Every other country in the entire world has a minimum vacation law. North Korea? North Korea apparently has a a mandatory vacation law. You know, uh, actually, that's a good point. I don't know if you... Maybe there's no data out of North Korea. But in any case, there are all kinds of places that probably do that we'd be ashamed to be ranked below. Right. But, you know, honestly, here's here's my takeaway. Even if you give people, you know, the companies are forced to give you one-week paid vacation, unless you actually made it mandatory to take a vacation, mm. I don't think Americans are going to change anytime soon. That's American just guilt. who we are, and uh, you might as well get used to it. All right. So that was a question uh, drawn from the basket of questions thrown into our scribbit. 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 
little widget on our website. And if you've got one that you want Santa to follow up on, head to intheloopshow.net, pop your question in there, and uh, we sort through them every couple of weeks and try and find a, a couple to dig into. So, Santa, thanks very much for looking into that one. No problem, Jeff. And uh, podcast listeners, here's something that we just tried. While we were putting together that segment, just so you know, Santa and I were streaming live on Ustream. It was the first time we tried that, and I thought, well, why not, when we're bringing Santa in for the next uh, Scribbit Cast thing, just open up the live video broadcast and see it. We had... 26 people tuning in uh, and leaving comments and, and all that good stuff. So we'll uh, we'll try that again. And for details, just follow us on Twitter or uh, get to our Facebook page and you'll know when we're doing it next week, if we do it next week or next time. So we've been listening, uh, I think at the top of the show, we played somebody who was talking about 2010 is going to be their year of wearing more hats. We had a lot of people respond to this question. 2010 will be my year of blank. And so let's get into a couple more of those before the show ends here. Americans, if you are too guilty or too overworked or simply out of days uh, and you just can't travel, remember you can't travel in your mind. You can travel intellectually. And that's what this next one is about. This is a gentleman who filled in the blank and responded to our question. His name is Godin. And uh, I'll let him say his last name because it's just way cooler when he says it. He lives in Burnsville, Minnesota. My name is Godin Nambudiripad. 2010 to me is uh, one in which I will be embarking a little bit more seriously into understanding the spiritual aspects of life. I'm 68 years old. I haven't done anything particularly spiritual except uh, I grew up in a Hindu household. I went through the rituals and I did do the mantras and all that, but to me that is more superficial or conditioning rather than any knowledge. So at this stage, I thought uh, I want to understand uh, the principles behind it. Now, books and things like that much more easily available. Also, there are uh, TV programs uh, that uh, we get from satellite from India, which explains in my language and simple ways some of those principles. So that's the quest that I am on. You know, I was an engineer. I was doing a lot of intellectual work before. So uh, here's another uh, avenue in which I can exercise my brain, I guess. Godan Nambudirapad. There, I do get to say it. Uh, and let's tackle another one of these while we're at it. Kristen Schaefer posted on our Facebook page that 2010 is her year of becoming a doctor. Sounds great. So I just gave her a quick call. She was on her commute, I think, or commuting between clinics, just to ask her uh, what the deal was. I am graduating from chiropractic school and be a chiropractic physician. Aha. All right. Yep. Very cool. And so how many how many years of schooling has that been for you? Uh, chiropractic school was three and a half and then four years of undergrad. And then uh, a lot of time a lot of time before that trying to figure out what I wanted to do. <laughs> well, I was going to ask if this is the kind of thing that you've, uh, did, you, did you know from when you were a little girl that you wanted to be a chiropractor? Probably not. Um, I had no idea, and if you would have told me that, even at the age of 16, I probably would have looked at you like you were crazy. <laughs> <laughs> have you been actually kind of glad at all to be uh, in school the last two years, you know, as the economy's been falling apart? I have said that numerous times. I am very thankful that I have been in school through all this. I'm not sure that this is absolutely the best time to be getting out of school, but um, yeah, it's been nice to be a student for a while. That's Kristen Schaefer, who is uh, here in the Twin Cities, by the way. 
And it uh, sounds like she's very happy with where she's heading. We did get plenty of job-related uh, resolutions or predictions or whatever you want to call them in this batch of uh, 2010 answers we got from you all. Uh, some were like Allison, a listener in uh, Arizona, who says 2010 is the year of starting her own business. And she's doing that because she is fed up with the place where she is working at the moment. And actually, there's some stats we can uh, pull up here. New numbers out this week show what I think many of you might actually know already in your hearts. Most Americans do not like their jobs. Only 45% of American workers are actually satisfied with the jobs that they have. Uh, The conference board, which puts that stat out, they've been keeping that for more than 20 years. And this is the worst it has ever been. American job satisfaction is at an all-time low, at least as long as we've been keeping track. In that context, it should be fun to talk with the author of a sunny new book that is also out this week, along with those job satisfaction numbers, New Job, New You, A Guide to Reinventing Yourself in a Bright New Career. Ah. The author is Alexandra Levitt. Alexandra, thanks very much for taking some time for our little show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And Alexander also writes a career advice column for the Wall Street Journal, uh, dispenses advice at conferences all over the place. And you totally love your job, right? Or, or your jobs, I should say. I do love my job. But you know what, Jeff? It's been an evolution in the making. And this is probably the foremost piece of advice I have for people who are interested in making a career change is that it doesn't happen overnight. It's something that you drive forward a little bit at a time. And that's what I did starting in 2003. Do you ever feel a little a little greasy, a little guilty, you know, coming from this, this wonderful place now and saying, hey, you know, look at me, you all can do this too. It worked out. Well, not really, because I work <laughs> very, very hard. I don't have a lot of what I would say traditional luck where things just kind of land in my lap. I'll give you an example of that, Jeff. My very first book, They Don't Teach Corporate in College, I worked to sell it for a very long time, ended up selling it for almost no advance. I then proceeded to write the entire thing. A month after I turned it in, the publisher went bankrupt. Ouch. So I was in the position of having to shop something that was already written. And in the nonfiction world, that's rather the kiss of death. No editor wants to take on a book that they're unable to shape. Mm -hmm. And it was probably one of my darkest days, and I thought, wow, I really made a mistake with this author thing. But in the end, you know, I I did just try really hard. I pounded the pavement, and I did manage to get another publisher, and I had to make some changes to the manuscript, and I had to take less money for it, but I turned the situation around. Can people take your advice, really, in an economy that's this bad? If anything, the advice is more applicable, because I'm not advising that anyone goes out and quits their job tomorrow to find their dream work. I think what you need to do is a a much more measured approach. You need to keep the job you have if you have one and do little things. For example, people who are in jobs that they're dissatisfied with should take steps to make that job more personally meaningful for them rather than just either kind of stewing or trying to make a drastic change. And an example of one thing you can do is, is just look around to see what types of training and development opportunities your company might offer. Do they have job rotation ideas where you can go in and work in another department or another geographic location for a couple of months. Try to look at your existing situation and remember that your perception of it really influences the reality. So in, in the book, I imagine you, you chronicle, and I, I, it's just out and I actually don't have a copy, so you have to fill me in. I imagine you're chronicling some, some very cool success stories. Uh, I wonder if you just give me one really inspiring example. My favorite story, I guess I would say, is the gentleman who was a minister. He had uh, kind of been schooled in divinity and had been raised from the perspective of entering the field and, and, and being this religious figure. And he started doing it 
and he realized that he didn't feel the connection to God that he had hoped. And the only part of it he really liked was the marketing. He loved to go out into the community and advertise what the church could bring to people and, and doing events and doing um, different marketing campaigns. Hmm. That was the part of it that really energized him, not the part of it that was so connected to God. And so as a result of that, he actually ended up leaving the ministry to become a public relations professional. And you can imagine what that interview was like. You're sitting in a big city agency interview, and your only previous job experience is that you've been a minister for 15 years. And, and the reason you're making the shift is, ah, just, this wasn't so into God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it was about like, how you talk that was the part it. of it that he found meaningful. Yeah, was, yeah. What was so inspiring to me is the, the way he managed to spin it Mm-hmm. so that the agency people could see the value of this experience. The fact that he did evangelize an entire community around his messages. Mm-hmm. You would have to spin it, because that's one of the things that's just baffling to me in a way, is this statistic that uh, that young people, especially younger workers, change uh, not only companies, but change entire career areas so often. And yet, I would think that many people, if they're like me, you spend a lot of time developing very specific skills in one very specific thing, and leaping to something else, I don't know, our, our economy, and, and it seems like the way that economy uh, that companies groom workers don't necessarily facilitate that, and yet it happens somehow. Right. That's what I recommend for young people. Instead of coming out of college, for example, and thinking you're going to find the career of your lifetime, you should be trying to acquire an arsenal of those skills that are more generalized. And so it doesn't necessarily matter so much what the specific position is and whether you're in love with it for a lifetime since you're going to be changing anyway. Exact opposite of what I did when I started my career. I did. Me too. That's intriguing advice, and it actually seems smart to me <laughs> in, in hindsight. You like to focus in this book and in your previous books on uh, younger workers in their 20s and 30s especially, mm-hmm. and uh, at least according to these new uh, work satisfaction stats, younger workers are more satisfied than older workers, but many of them are also quite unhappy in their jobs. And presumably, the companies where these younger folks work want to keep them around and want to keep them productive because they're going to need them. Uh, What kind of advice would you give their bosses, the companies, in in terms of relating to these uh, millennial workers or even younger Gen Xers? The thing that I I tell them is, you know what, you were schooled in in an age where 20-somethings had to pay their dues. The millennials are not willing to bide their time paying their dues. They want that achievement and success now. And so what you have to do is you have to help them direct their energy into projects where they can add the most value. Now, this might be a little bit tough because it might require more one-on-one, hands-on mentoring of them. Mm -hmm. But in fact, that's what you have to do. You have to set aside time every day or at least once a week for them to come in your office and for you to actually work one-on-one with them. And I think you have to give them a reality check, too. This isn't something I would have recommended a year or two ago, but now I feel like the economy has kind of woken up this generation a little bit, and they realize, you know, it's not all going to be rosy for me. I'm not going to have everything just handed to me. And they're, they're willing to accept some setbacks. I think that millennial uh, mindset, and even I'm outside the millennial uh, generation by uh, a bit. I'm, I'm 32, but I think I share that to some extent. Uh, you and you, I are the same age. Yeah, you really want to, you want to be doing something real. I mean, not, you, just, you just don't want to kick around a company and, you know, uh, right. and just get the paycheck. But you also want to be leveled with at right. the same time. And that's a really, really, I, th- I think that's a tough spot for bosses to be in, but they they have to do it, <laughs> or it just drives you crazy. they got to be honest with you at the same time as they are actually letting you do something real. Right, and I, I think that it requires some creativity on behalf of managers. So explain to them the reasons that things are the way they are, 
and help them see the benefit of your expertise because millennial employees really are looking for the guidance of their managers. Well, this is really important stuff, Alexander. Thanks for taking some time for us. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. It's Alexandra Levitt. Uh, the book is called New Job, New You. You can learn more about her and the books and all that at Alexandra Levitt, 1V1T, uh, alexandralevitt.com. All right, well, let's investigate one more of these. Uh, 2010 will be my year of fill-in-the-blank responses before we wrap up here. I'm going to put in a call to Alina Roberts, and we've talked with Alina on the show before. She's a very friendly listener of ours who lives out in Corvallis, Oregon. And uh, on her Facebook page, she dropped a hint about what 2010 has in store for her. Hello? Hi, Alina. It's Jeff. Hey, Jeff. How are you? I'm okay. You said that 2010 is your year of going back to school. So, first of all, congratulations on that. Thank you. I had my first class yesterday. Oh, okay. And what are you going back to school to uh, study? I am uh, going back to take some prerequisites for a master's program. So, most of the classes are focused on education. And the master's, then, is, is in education? You want to be a teacher? The, the master's is a program to teach the blind and visually impaired. Ah, okay. Which gets to what makes most of, of what you do, I guess, somewhat more, I don't know, interesting, challenging, whatever word you want to put on it, than, than when the rest of us would do it, is you're blind, of course. You've had to head to this strange community college campus, right, that you know nothing about? Yes. So uh, before the term started, unfortunately, the buildings were not open, but my husband and I went over to the campus. We start by going from where I'm getting dropped off by the bus, and then planning a route that's the simplest for me and my guide dog to remember and not diverting from that route. Hmm. Um, so what, what's your guide dog's name? Just curious. Midge. So Midge kind of goes back to school here too, I guess. This is a, a workout for, for her brain. Oh, definitely. Huh. Yeah. So you went to class for the first time and uh, were you able to get, get to the classroom on time? I, I know just from reading your blog, you were a little worried about that, right? Yeah. Um, yesterday was was good because I did meet up with somebody from Disability Services, and they hadn't actually uh, hired a note-taker for me, so she actually went to class with me. A note-taker, is is that how it works? Because you're, you're not, are you in sort of a, a special program, or you're just in with, uh, you know, other sighted people, and uh, somehow you got to take the notes? How's it work? Right. So I'm in, in regular classes, and what Disability Services does is they hire somebody to come into class with you, um, when I was at the University of Oregon, they just hired somebody who was in the class. But I guess they're they're doing it a little bit differently. So they're hiring an outside person who will come and be in class with me, and her sole job is to take notes. Hmm. And then she'll email those to me. Are you kind of comfortable with situations like that, you know, by this point where you've got somebody and that's basically just what they do is make sure that you've got what you need? Yeah. I, I, I would feel, I don't know, I would wonder if I would feel self-conscious about that ever. Or uh, Some people um, really can be. Um, I know when I was at the University of Oregon, uh, they had a policy that if you met with your note-taker, that it needed to be outside of class, because there are a lot of students who have disabilities that aren't noticeable, that hmm. don't want their fellow students to know, I have a note-taker in class. Um either because they're ashamed or they feel self-conscious about it, or maybe they're worried their friends will say, how come you get a note-taker and I don't? So the note-taker is not necessarily sitting, like, right next to you. You guys aren't con- right. talking during the class. They're just sort of in the classroom somewhere. Right, um, yeah. And, and as far as you're concerned, it doesn't really matter. I mean, they could be in the back of the room. They could be next to you. Who cares? Sure. 
Huh. Yeah, it doesn't matter to me as long as they're paying attention. <laughs> so you went to University of Oregon for, uh, what, undergrad, I presume, yeah. right? Yes. And it's been a, a few years now since you've been back Five. in the classroom? Wow. <laughs> Have you known for a while now that this is what you wanted to do with your life? I go back and forth. Some days I, I tell myself that I, I promised myself I would never, ever be a teacher because my parents were educators and I, I, I kind of got to live with all the things that they dealt with. Hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I'm concerned about the way that children who have vision impairments are being treated and if it takes a person who has the experience to really get into parents' heads what their child needs is is more important than what they think they need mm-hmm. then then I think that's where I needed most. Can you give me more more details on that like like an example of of what you're talking about? Sure. A good example is that every year um, a student with a disability has an IEP meeting, and that's the individual education plan. And I have these every single year. Hmm. And uh, you sit around a table with your parents and uh, somebody from uh, the special education department and usually even the principal. And you sit around the table and you come up with a list of accommodations. And not until I think I was in middle school or high school did I feel like I was actually participating in this process. I was just really sitting there and listening to whatever people thought that I needed at the time. Um, And so I guess my goal for becoming a teacher is to give the child a chance to have their own voice heard and to help parents realize that there's nothing wrong with their child needing something or... um, requesting accommodations. It does not make their child any less valuable. Well, that sounds like a worthy mission. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, I certainly wish you luck with it. I was actually really excited to read about uh, about what you're doing. It sounds sounds cool. And you keep blogging along the way, I'm sure. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> Alina blogs at uh, blindgal.com. And great to talk with you again. Thanks, Alina. Bye. And we'll say bye as well. We're going to have more of these things for you next week, these 2010 my year of fill-in-the-blank dealies. We'll spread them out throughout the show. In the Loops, produced by Sandin Totten and me. We get some great help this week, as we do most weeks now, from Anna Wegel, our BFF. We're very grateful for that. And uh, I'm Jeff Horwich, and I will leave you with a closing thought. I have a bit of a cold, as I said, but not so much that I couldn't work up a bit of a fanfare for NBC. NBC, the people of my generation, are pleading with you, calling out to you, that you will realize before it's too late. Jay Leno is not funny. I'll talk to you next week.